0: Fast and Powerful Relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed.
1: Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it Ah. eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available. However, you listen to podcasts
2: spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: Here's your host, James Witham.
0: From Key House to a prehistoric pit, oh boy, do we have to cover this week. It's episode 390 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. Almost feels like as big as a 400th episode would be this week because I have got so many guests from Netflix's Lock and Key Season 2 now streaming on Netflix, oh, Connor Jessup is here, Dobby Stanchfield, Halia Jones, Griffin Glock, Meredith, Avril Carlton Cuse. Oh my goodness, so many ways to give you inside info on Netflix's Lock and Key in season two is incredible. We'll dive into that with them here in a few minutes. And then, how about we talk about La Brea with Zyra Gorecki, who plays Izzy on the show. You think she's gonna have... Some interesting things to say about what's been happening in these first four episodes. Yeah, I'll talk to her about that. And another just mega review week. How about the season three finale of Titans? Talk about that. We'll talk about the Injustice movie. How about can we get into a little bit of Dune as well? Think we could do that? And that's not even everything that's going to be happening on the show this week. There's far too much to talk about. There's far too much to do. Let's kick it off and start talking about Netflix's Lock and Key with some amazing guests next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
2: This is writer and artist Gabriel Rodriguez, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: Demons and echoes hiding in plain sight. Season two of Netflix's Lock and Key is now streaming, and I just could not wait to not only watch the show, but get a chance to talk to the amazing cast and producers, behind the show and I'm going to start things off now with Darby Stanchfield who of course plays Nina Locke and Connor Jessup who plays Tyler Locke. I think that's the perfect way just to start off talking about season two. Let's just start it out kind of simple then since it's just me here. Talk about where you guys are both starting off in this second season after last season's craziness in the finale.
2: Season two starts in a really interesting place for the audience because the locks think they've won at the end of season one. They think that they've defeated Dodge that there's no more threat. They are settling in at key house and in Matheson, they have all these friends and new relationships. they a lot of their interpersonal family dynamics are really strong. So they're doing better. All of them really than they have been in a long time. And on the other hand, we the audience knows that the villain the dodge is not gone that in fact dodge is closer and more menacing than ever and there's a new demon so this the the threat is is bigger than it's ever been so the tension between those two uh, contradictions grows and grows and grows at the beginning of season 2
3: i would say the other thing is along with starting out with a Locke family being connected and and feeling on top of the world and happy from the adult side of the, of, of things where Nina doesn't see the magic, you know, she just thinks that the family's connected and her kids are happy in Matheson. And she made the right decision, moving everybody back to Rendell Locke's ancestral home. And that continues for a little while at the beginning. And then of course, as the stakes get ramped up and dodge, you know, Gabe creates more and more trouble and the Locks discover more about the power behind the keys and this subject about who can make keys and you know there are attempts that are made this season and why and all of that in the adult world Mina starts to feel this sort of separation from her kids and she starts to feel the strain again of not connecting to them and she doesn't know why and this is play out at, played out in new ways this season than season one so it's not a repeat but it's it's a it's a build upon that, so it, the stakes for everybody in both worlds are higher.
0: Speaking of playing out a little bit differently this season, what was it like to kind yeah. of go from Laisla as Dodge from in season one to more of Griffin as Dodge in season two? How interesting was that?
2: I mean, it was it, it almost it's hard to remember that it's actually the same character sometimes because <laughs> they have such different they have such different energies and I mean as actors and as characters and for us, I mean in a way it. I I had a lot, just on a surface level, I had a lot more stuff with Griffin than I did with Lysla in season one. Largely, up until the end of season one, and a little pocket in the middle, Lysla is like this dodge, as a villain, is like this force that's coming from outside. We don't actually have that many interactions with her. Whereas Gabe is woven into our lives in a much more profound, everyday way and he is a much more casual presence you know he's not always this black cloak wearing menacing demon he seems like a normal kid that's why it's so scary and i think that it's 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 a really fun way to to keep that character fresh it also it also raises a lot of questions i think about what dodge wants and who dodge really is at his her core that i think becomes actually really an interesting part of the show as it goes on.
0: So, Darby for youth, things take a little bit of a different direction for for Nina this season. We get to see her maybe a little bit happier if I if I can kind of put it that way. So, how much did you know about what her direction would be heading into this season and how great was it for you to kind of get to see her in a little bit of a happier light this season?
3: It was nice. Um Carlton and Meredith, they that was one of the first things they told me about season 2. Nina's gonna meet somebody. There's gonna be a new person in her life that will get her attention. And then we actually did some Zoom chemistry reads since you know it's the time of COVID and I was already in Toronto shooting. We we did so I so <laughs> I had a pretty good idea before we started shooting. And when we got into that, when Brendan Hines, who plays Josh Bennett, and I started working, fantastic actor, we have we had a great time working together. But I felt sort of this, something felt off about within the first couple of, couple of scenes of ours. I remember there's this one scene that's uh, about a three-page scene. And we were working on all that. And I just felt like I wasn't quite getting the full thing. And we finished. And I still, I, it was just nagging at me. And it wasn't until I slept on it. And the next day, I realized, oh, yeah, Nina's happy. That's what's different. She's happy. <laughs> And so that was nice to get to explore and discover what this new sort of emotion is and not to totally let go of the grief, but it transforms. And it it was, you know, it was nice to sort of keep that underneath the whole season. But yeah, the new element of happiness was fun to play.
0: Connor, I feel like a little bit different for you because we know what the rules of magic are, we know what the rules of the keys are. We also know that Tyler is the eldest of the Locke children. So talk about what kind of pressures he's facing this season, not just for himself, but, I mean, for Jackie as well, quite frankly.
2: Yeah, Tyler, because he starts in this place of more security and 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 comfort with his family and with his home and with these keys, it gives him the space to suddenly realize that he and Jackie are on the cusp of being adults, and they know from season one that adults can't remember magic. I mean, Nina sees magic, but it doesn't stick. Duncan can't remember. We're not exactly sure why, or why some people can, or some people and others can't, but it becomes this looming thing for him that he's going to forget, and Jackie is going to forget. And if they forget magic, are they also going to forget everything that magic has given them? You know, all this. This, this new closeness with Kinsey and this, this uh, understanding of who his dad was that has given him so much relief, is that all going to go away too? And if Jackie forgets magic, is that going to like sever this bond that they have? And he becomes really focused on that and trying to find a way to hold on to those memories and to hold on to this life that he's built for himself. Um, and Jackie has sort of a different take on it. And as the season goes on, she becomes a little warier and a little she starts to wonder if adults forget magic for a reason, uh, that there's something natural in letting go of those memories as you grow up. And that becomes, that, that tension between them and that, the threat of that forgetting is really Tyler's central arc this season.
0: Awesome, really quickly, without spoiling anything, how cool was it to work with some of these newer keys this season?
2: It's always fun to have a new key. I mean, I, I wish that they had introduced a new key every scene. <laughs> I, I I think, I just think it's fun to, it's, I always enjoy like the conversations on in a really banal way. I enjoy the conversations on set of like, how does this key work? Like, do you turn it clockwise or counterclockwise? Like what, what sort of face, what sort of face do I make? Like, what sort of sound does it make? You know, because that's, that's the thing I always forget, like even watching just the trailers for season two is how much of uh, the effect of these keys is the sound that they make you know, like the sound that the head key makes when it's turned or the sound that the Hercules key makes when it goes in, which obviously when we're shooting is not there and having to imagine that freshly with each key is, is really fun.
3: And let me tell you, I had key envy. <laughs> <All bad>. <laughs> <laughs> never getting to, never even getting to hold these things. Every once in a while I would take one away from them and just hold it and be like, what it must be like.
2: <laughs> Although we we, one downside is we had this whole, there's something we invented called key acting which is having to <laughs> having to, to use the, these keys are really small like, yes. and and having to maneuver them in shots you know it's very technical it's like raise it like if there's a shot that seems simple like raise <laughs> raise the key up and like look at it of course it like you have to raise it at a certain distance from your body and between the, the camera for spot. focus and yeah. like get it to turn it in a way so that it hits the light and And sometimes you do this like fifteen times, and you're like, "God damn, I hate these keys so much." (laughs) That's incredible. Yeah, I would be good at key acting. (laughs) You were good at key acting.
3: I said I would be good if I ever had a key. I would be. be, Also,
2: here's another thing, just just to add to the appreciation that people have when they watch that. I don't know if you ever. Next time you try and open your door, like, just how often do you, like, without any fiddling, just smoothly insert a key. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on the first on the first try you always like feel around a little bit for it right but <laughs> sorry now i'm just like moaning but it's such a good point though seriously but, but if you drop the keys show, all like, the time but if you watch the show it's like every time a key goes into the door it's like just like perfect it's like there's they don't teach that you know like that's a skill that you have to <laughs> they learn don't teach that. it's truly that's like a, a hard one ability so I want people to be on the lookout for beautiful key work.
0: That's awesome. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate (laughs) the time today. Thanks, James. Moving on to the demon team of Griffin Gluck, who of course plays Dodge slash Gabe. And then Haleah Jones, who plays Eden. We don't actually know her demon name, though. I don't think, but let's get the villainous side of things for season two of Lock and Key.
4: Hey, hey guys, how's it yes. going? <laughs> what's up? Hey, what's up? That was really, That was. this is a nice, this is a refreshing. Okay, now,
0: now, yeah, and it kind of opens out, up a little bit. So this mm-hmm. one's actually for the both of you. Obviously, Kinsey has no idea what's going on with Gabe or Eden. Of course, we don't want to spoil anything, but how difficult is it going to be to keep that secret throughout this season?
4: Ooh, you know, I think that's that's. How of uh, of the season is uh, is that question, you know, because obviously the audience knows something that Kinsey doesn't. So every single scene that involves her and Gabe or her and Eden has a very anxious and anxiety inducing undertone of like, will he, will she, you know, is this going to be the moment? How long can this go on? And it's definitely a big challenge. Uh, Gabe's got a lot riding against him because uh, Eden is a bit more reckless than he is, but they're yeah. definitely both reckless. And uh it's hard to keep that stuff covered up and leave no leave no traces.
3: Eden wants to just go in there, do the thing and get over with
0: it. So <laughs> <laughs> To answer your question. It's gonna be <laughs>
4: it sounds like it.
0: This one again for the both of you guys. We we actually see this on the trail in the trailer a little bit, so it's not really a spoiler, but it seems like you your characters really aren't the best of friends, not great allies. It doesn't seem like so. Can you guys tell us anything about their conflict and just, is it just two strong personalities in the room or is it going to be a little more than that?
3: Yeah. It's kind of like two alpha wolves trying to get something that they both want. Yet one of them is more experienced and uh, which is Gabe Dodge. And then there is Eden who is very much like a baby demon in ways but obviously there's been the summer where she's kind of like, I don't know if like Gabe locked her in a house and, and made sure she didn't go and ruin everything for him. But she's a uh, growing demon and trying to like figure out her things. But she ref- she's a very independent, headstrong character as well. So she doesn't like being pushed down by Gabe.
4: If I can piggyback off of that, I think um, something that we talked about a lot and have talked about a lot is that sort of the dynamic that we chose and we had a lot of conversations beforehand about this was, um, you know, I think we settled on the idea that Eden's sort of a dog that's been beaten by its owner a bunch of times. And, um, you know, I think Gabe having this, this control, this power, and you know, the the battle between the power dynamic, she wants it. And I have it in that sense, because I'm an echo and I have a little bit more power than her, I can kind of, you know, put her in her place on occasion. The thing with, you know, a beaten dog is it'll put its ears back and its tail between its legs when it has to so that it doesn't get a beating. But, you know, you hit one too many times and that dog's going to bite back. And I think that's sort of the dynamic that we see with Eden and Gabe.
0: Griffin, this one's for you, my friend. So we know that Dodge needs Kinsey, or at least it seems that way, Gabe slash Dodge. But, you know, kind of playing a very dangerous game there. But anybody with eyes can see that Kinsey, the whole Kinsey-Scott thing isn't exactly over. So do you think that's mm. going to become an issue at some point?
4: Breaking my heart here with this question, James. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, you know, I think, uh, I think that's a major part of the show is that love triangle. Personally, I, I like Gabe and Kinsey together, gotta say. But I know a lot of people like Scott and Kinsey together. Look, look, it's fine. Choose whichever side you want. This is Edward versus Jacob all over again. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a major plot point this season. And, um, I, I don't know how many people want to be in manipulative and toxic relationships better yet. I don't know how many people want to be in a relationship with a demon. So, um, I think if she, you know, I'm going to say this in a very broad spectrum way to not spoil anything, if she, or when she finds out Gabe's a demon, we'll see what that leads to. And good luck with that, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> need it. I need it. Got a lot riding against me. <laughs>
0: And finally, if you're going to get the scoop on any show, you got to go to the executive producers, showrunners, directors, Carlton Cuse, and Meredith Averill also join me to talk about season two of Lock and Key. Meredith, Carlton, how are you guys doing today? Good, James. How are you? I like
5: the name of your podcast. We love puns, so down and nerdy is pretty good.
0: Thank you. It's one of my specialties. <laughs> appreciate it. So uh, we actually get to see some new keys this season that are introduced for the first time. How much can you tell us? I know you can't tell us a whole lot, but... How much of a game changer are some of these keys going to be for this season?
5: Hugely. Yeah, we can't, you know, spoil, obviously, some of the keys to come, but they completely change the fabric of the show and the rules of the show. So everything changes because of these keys. Yeah,
6: I mean, the keys are central to the storytelling of the show. It's one of the things that we love about the show is that we get to explore all these new keys and the keys have costs and consequences and, you know, what, what you see may not be what you get. And that's just so central to the storytelling that Meredith and I are trying to do. And so obviously the keys are a huge part of what happens this season.
0: All right. Again, this one is for the both of you. We get to learn a lot more about Duncan this season? What was it like to kind of expand on his character a bit and give him a much more important arc this season?
6: Well, I mean, Aaron Ashmore is one of our favorite characters and we didn't feel like we had time in season one to do everything that we wanted to with that character. And uh, there's also a lot of rich mythology for the Duncan character in the comic book. And then I would say that it was even enhanced in the way we were telling our story. So that was one of the things that we were most excited about in season two was getting to really play out his character and have the audience really understand a lot more about where he came from, what he's been dealing with, and then kind of see him change in ways that becomes really fundamental to the storytelling and the way the story unfolds. And it's a great arc too. Thank you.
0: Glad
5: that you enjoyed it. Yeah. It's definitely one of the more kind of, I think emotional and surprising stories of the season. We're proud of it.
0: Obviously Dodge is a big part of last season going to be a big part of this season as well. But last season it was more Laslett as Dodge. This season we get to see more Griffin as Dodge. So talk about that transition between the two of them from season 1 into season 2 and how that changed things a little bit.
5: Well, it's great to kind of mix up the energy of your villains always, you know. When a show has to continue with the same villain for seasons and seasons and seasons, there's always the, you know, worry that it's going to feel a bit stale. So you know, Lisla De La Vera playing Dodge in season one. You'll feel a very different energy as Griffin Dunn playing Dodge in season two. And we love Griffin as our Dodge, partly because we've never really you've never seen that actor, you know, get to play that kind of a character. And it's surprising because you don't see you don't look at him and think that kid's scary. But yet there are, I think there are genuine moments within our season where he really does kind of just on a dime, you know, sell really this incredible, he's so formidable. It's been really fun for it was really fun for us to write to he and also his dynamic between he and Eden, which was another kind of, you know, a a mix, a way to mix it up the season to be able to have our two villains. Uh, But Griffin, we think, did a terrific job as Dodge and kind of sold this completely different energy than than Lisla did.
0: All right. Again, we're going to try to avoid spoilers here, but I would say that I loved all the episodes, but for me, episode five is the no turning back episode, where if you get there, you're going to binge the whole thing. So you might as well just get comfortable. So I think it's one of the biggest episodes of the season. So without spoiling anything, and I believe Carlton, you directed this episode, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, what was it like putting that episode together? And did you kind of know that that was like the epic episode where you're like, well, now we've got them.
6: Yeah, I think it was kind of the epic episode, which is, part of the reason that I wanted to direct it, you know, Meredith wrote the episode and it's just a fantastic script. And so it was a wonderful collaboration between us as we tried to bring it to life. And it just, it felt like this idea of, you know, going inside Eden's head was one of the most delicious things for us to explore in the entire series. And certainly to that point in the series, it was something that was just really incredibly special. Mark Steele, our production designer, you know, really took off with the ideas that we presented him. And I don't know, it was just, it was, it it is, it is a real true pivot point. I think you're right. I think that's the moment at which, you know, everything changes in season two. And, you know, I really feel honored and delighted to direct it. Um, Hopefully the audience will, uh, will feel the same way.
0: One of the things I think you guys did really well with this show, especially in the second season, is you don't introduce a ton of new characters. And a lot of shows kind of do that in their second season, and I I think that's to their detriment sometimes. Talk about the characters that you did introduce, and was it just as important when you introduced them as the few characters that you did bring in the season?
6: We felt like we had a lot more exploring to do of the characters that we'd already met in season two. So we had... I think season one really sort of sets up the premise of the show and deals with the family and their grief and their dislocation moving to this new place. But we felt in season two, we had a lot of room to explore their relationships. And so we wanted to learn more about them across the season two. So we didn't feel like we needed a whole bunch of new characters. We felt like we just needed the opportunity to dig deeper into a lot of the characters that we had. Obviously, there are some new characters, but I think for us their main goal was to really deepen the audience's connection to the characters that they met in season one.
5: Yeah, we're excited to you know introduce Josh, who is a you know new a history teacher at Matheson, who has this kind of budding relationship with Nina because we really loved giving that to Nina. You know, she's been long suffering. It's really nice to kind of see her start something, but then also have it play on our mystery of actually this guy might be here for ulterior motives. And what does that mean? And also we really loved introducing the character of Jamie to his daughter, to be able to give Bodhi a friend because we've seen Kinsey and Tyler with their friends It's really nice to be able to see Bodhi with someone his own age who is excited about the keys too. And he gets to kind of discover keys with her.
0: So happy you brought that up because I'm so happy for Bodhi. Thank you guys. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like this season, the splattering kind of takes on a little bit of a life of its own and we get to, you know, just feel a little bit more of the vibe and maybe even talk sequel about that. Was it fun to kind of dive into that a little bit more this season as well? And is there ever a chance that fans are actually going to get to see the splattering from start to finish.
6: Well, from your lips to Netflix's ears, uh, <laughs> you know, if some if Netflix said, "Hey, Meredith and Carlton, you guys want to do the splattering as a show?" I don't think that we would uh, say no. We definitely see some of it and we spent a lot of time talking about the movie and the trailer is a really really fun thing that we were able to put together. I you know, it's just it's it we love the Savini squad and we wanted to sort of feel like what they did led to something tangible. So, uh, yeah, that was that. And, you know, there's more, more movie making to come from those guys.
0: So as you can hear from everybody involved, there's so much to look forward to this season on Netflix's Lock and Key. My personal opinion, if you loved season one, I think you're going to love season two even more. There's so much suspense there's you know, so much fun. The new keys are amazing. And there's some twists that I don't know if you're ready for. So make sure you're binging Netflix's Lock and Key this weekend, now streaming on Netflix. Again, thank you so much to the folks at Netflix for allowing me to participate in the virtual press day for Lock and Key to be able to bring those interviews to you guys. Up next, how about we talk about another show? La Brea, Zyra Gorecki joins me to talk about Izzy and the Harris family next on the Down and Nerdy podcast.
4: That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind.
2: This is the story of Harry Dalowitz, and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream.
4: So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
7: This is Summer Bischel from The Magicians,
3: and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: So whether you're up top or on the bottom, La Brea is a great show airing right now on NBC. So let's talk about the surface first. Let's talk to Izzy Harris herself, Zara Garecki. Zara, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic, how are you? Doing really, really well. So this is your first major series role. Now that you're kind of a few episodes in, what's the response been like from fans? Really good. I I
7: really expected people to come after me a little bit and be like, this was really? terrible. Yeah, oh, well, yeah, People people like to be mean. When well, they don't true. have to take responsibility for it, but that's okay, <laughs> you know, living their life, whatever. But they haven't, I haven't had anybody horrible come after me.
0: It was so nice,
7: everybody has been so nice.
0: I like that. That's the bar. I haven't had anybody horrible come after me, so yeah, that's no. good. <laughs> so, let's dig into the show a little bit. It seems like there's still a lot of guilt running through pretty much the entire Harris family at this point. How much is is he still kind of carrying? that guilt about what happened to her mom and her brother in that first episode.
7: I think she carries it throughout the entire season, truly. But I don't think that's something that you can just get over, you know? And even though like she knows that her family is still alive, I think she sat there and she really thought like, I, I could have saved my mom. I could have kept her with me, even though I couldn't have saved Josh, I could have saved my mom. And I think that's a truly awful feeling. And that stays with you for a very long time
0: and now she is with her dad, and things started out a little rough there, but it seems to be getting progressively better with each episode, but now we see here in episode four, it looks like he might be taking on a mission of his own right after a failed mission, so what could that actually do to their relationship?
7: So I think, like you said in the beginning, it was kind of rough, and I think that was just, you know, that was because of the separation. You know, they've they've been buddy-buddy there for a very, very long time, and you see that start to, their, their bonds start to form again after the first episode. And in the fourth episode, you see that he does take on a mission, like you said. And it's that thing where even though, like, your friend is doing something stupid, you're going to support them no matter what. And you're it gonna, is. No matter what. But you're also going to sit there and go, that's a dumb idea. You shouldn't do that. And I kind of think that's what Izzy does with her dad, where she's like, I don't feel comfortable with this. Yeah. That's, that's a tough one.
0: She's definitely not afraid to call him out on other stuff, though. So that, that would not surprise oh, no. me at all if that's how she reacts.
7: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. She definitely keeps him in line for sure i think that's what he needs i think that's what both of them need in that time
0: totally agree totally agree now we find out a pretty big secret in this episode as well between levi and eve and no one in the family knows now except for dad except for gavin he does he's the only one that knows the truth right now how do you think izzy would react let's let's kind of foreshadow how would she react if she learned the truth and do you think that kind of changes the relationship with her mother a little bit
7: i think so i think she would be absolutely horrified, first of all, right? Because she's she's her dad's girl, right? And her mom, she's kind of resenting anyway for breaking up the family. And to know that it was because of her, this, this guy that she saw as her uncle and, you know, really trusted, I think she would feel really betrayed, I think.
0: Does that kind of make that separation? If she were to find out like before mom came back, before Levi came back, would that make that separation even worse? Not just because, hey, I want my mom back, but also I want to confront mom about this.
7: Oh, yeah. Well, think, I mean, think about it. If you, if you have something that you want to tell someone and you're like, I have all these feelings about it and you can't say it to them, it just sits there and it festers, right? And then you finally get to say it and you're fine. I think that's totally how easy would be, you know, that she would be fine once, you know, it got out there. She'd probably still resent her mom for it, but it would fester for sure.
0: That's She's totally a festery me.
7: kind of person.
0: That's totally me. So I can completely relate with that for sure. So we heard Izzy talk about her brother a little bit in this week's episode. The relationship just can, kind of sound like the typical, you know, teenage sibling type relationship. So will we actually learn more about their relationship as the season goes on, or is that something that you'd like to see explored more as the season goes on?
7: I think I would like to see more. You see a little bit of it, but I would like to see more of it, just because I think I think that's really important to show that connection that they that they do have before you know throwing him in a sinkhole. <laughs> Possibly
0: so I want to trust dr. Nathan. I really really do and it seems like she wants to help out but for some reason I don't know if it's a whole sci-fi thing and you know, there's always somebody you never expect I'm still a bit leery of her So is is he kind of following her dad's instincts on this for trust and trusting her? Or do you feel like she has her own opinion there and you're shaking? Your oh, head no. already? <laughs>
7: no, She has her own opinion. She does not trust them at all any of those people because in the beginning in the very first episode they really kind of go, no, it's not, it's, they're all dead. Like it's, right. no. And so she takes that. She, she's holding on to that. And she's like, I don't trust you. I don't care what you've shown me. I do not trust you. And that definitely, she holds on to that for a good long while.
0: That would be me too. So I, I, I yeah, I'm with you on that as well. <laughs> so obviously you have different sets of characters in, in different settings on the show. I was just kind of wondering how much were you all aware episode to episode what was going on in each other's settings did you do like table reads together or anything like that or were you, were you just kept up to speed so I
7: made the choice very early on not to read the down under part
0: right oh, nice. like I
7: didn't know what was happening I just I still haven't read everything down under so I when I watch the show I see what's happening then but in my brain Izzy wouldn't know what was happening right and the only information she would have would be from Gavin and I kind—I of, wanted to have that a little, a little bit of method acting, whatever. Yeah. Um, I was gonna say
0: your first series regular role, and you're already going method. I love it. Yeah, I yeah. love it. Oh, for sure. <laughs> That's awesome. So, have you thought about if situations were reversed, how Izzy would handle herself down there in this prehistoric past setting? Because I, I think she'd be a, a key asset. Just my opinion.
7: Oh yeah, oh yeah. She she has the badassery going on mm-hmm. for sure. But having, you know, it's it's weird having a prosthetic in times like that, because you you do need, like, a doctor if your leg's not fitting, whatever. I think that part would be a little bit of uh, an issue. But I do think that she would definitely kick ass on everything else. You know, she's, she's definitely a survivalist. She's, she's got it going on, for sure.
0: Yeah, part of me wants to see that, but part of me also doesn't want to see that because I don't want her down there. So it's like, it's a push and pull for me when I'm watching, I'm like, oh, if only she was there, but I don't want her there. <laughs> <laughs> So speaking of which, you were, you were talking about, you, you know, you're the first below-the-knee amputee actress to actually have a series regular role in a major broadcast TV series. And you work, uh, you do some work with a great organization actually called Amputee Blade Runners. For anyone that doesn't know, can you talk a little bit about what they do and how people can help out that organization?
7: Absolutely, I can. That's my favorite thing to talk about. So for people who don't know, legs and blades cost sixty to $70,000, depending on if you have a knee, depending on what you need, right? Insurance doesn't cover it because it's considered recreational. Not exactly no, Um great. It's about like saying, you know, have you have you ever tried running in clogs,
0: the wooden shoes? I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> no,
7: no, no, no. It's really, really painful. And good luck. And that's about what it's like trying to run in a regular leg. So, ampty blade runners gives blades to people who need them, right? To people who are trying to get back into being athletic, who are already athletes, whatever it is, and between volunteering between working with different brands between, you know, all this crazy stuff, they can get the cost of a blade down to $3,500, $3,500. wow Oh yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a huge difference from, you know, no $70,000 that's manageable, you know, <laughs> and they truly are the most amazing people ever. And they give everything that they can physically possible do Poss- possibly do physically, possibly do. Does that make sense is that works good for me. Trick, works
0: for me yeah <laughs> this is, that sounds right to me
7: <laughs> Makes sense.
0: that's legit the point the point is they're helping a lot and that's all that yeah, matters yes. amputee amputee blade runners so for anybody didn't catch that name really quickly zara before i let you go your favorite episode of some of the ones that are coming up after this fourth episode oh uh
7: like seven i do like seven but five is really fun too i like five
0: five and seven which is great because five's the next one. And you get to see this coming Tuesday on NBC. Make sure you just watch La Brea every week anyway, then you won't miss any of the fun episodes. It's Zara Garecki. Thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And you want to talk about a show that's really coming to its own and found its rhythm. I think La Brea has definitely done that after the introduction that they did in the pilot. They've added a lot more depth. The show is so, so interesting, both above and below. Make sure you're watching it every Tuesday night on NBC. Again, thanks to Zyra Garecki for joining me to talk about Labrea this week. Up next, it's time to jump into all of our big reviews. Let's talk about the Dune movie next on the down and nerdy podcast.
3: Hi, I'm Melanie Scrifano. I play Wynonna Earp and you're listening
5: to the down and nerdy podcast.
0: Spice will flow and a chosen one will rise. It's time for my spoiler free review of the 2021 version of, of Dune and I it's going to be really difficult to do this spoiler free and I'm going to tell you why that is. I'm going to and I'm going to get this out of the way right now. If you're looking for a scathing review of how this compares to the original book by Frank Herbert or how it compares to the previous Dune movie then you're in the wrong place because I, I again, you've got enough of those reviews that you can listen to, read, watch whatever I think it's best to judge this movie based on its own merit and what Dennis Villeneuve was trying to bring to the forefront here. So that's exactly what I'm going to do. And if that's you know not good enough for you, then you fast forward a little bit and listen to some, some of the other stuff that I've got on the show this week. But I'm just I'm not going to do it. It just doesn't seem constructive to me. But I will say that this is a movie that is just deep, deep. I mean, neck deep in sci-fi lore and it really feels like it's creating its own elements and it's got this weird interesting blend of old world and futuristic world that is a very very cool mix to me and there's a whole bunch of themes at play here you could almost say that this is kind of in a way like if you're a novice to this, it's almost like Game of Thrones meets Star Wars in a certain respect, and don't kill me on that, okay, on social media. It's just an observation for anybody that is maybe a casual fan that wants to check check this movie out because there there is definitely a hierarchy you know, you've you've got your emperor in this as well, and you've got these different houses that you're dealing with, but you've also got certain elements of science fiction. And there's maybe even some witchcraft thrown in there a little bit as well. You've got, you know, who and what is Paul me, Timothy Chalmot, by the way, does a fantastic job in this movie. There's a lot of things at play here. And I will tell you this, too, before I get too deep into this. If you have a short attention span or if you lack patience for development in a long game of a science fiction movie, then you're wasting your time with Dune, because you will be frustrated. This movie doesn't really even kick into high gear until about, I'd say, 90 minutes in. And that's not a criticism, by the way. There's a lot of groundwork here. And a lot of it is character development through association as well. And what I mean by that is, there's, of course, a lot on Paul Astridis, as there should be, right? But then you've got his dad, the Duke, Leto Estradez, who's played by Oscar Isaac, and the way that they develop his character by proxy is how you're going to is one of the reasons you're going to be able to judge Paul Estradez a certain way, which I really, really thought was an interesting way of going about it. You could also kind of say the same thing for Josh Brolin's char- char- character of Gunnery Halleck. So that's also a very interesting way to put it. You're also establishing the Baron's character, and his people, by the way, so so you're doing that as well. You're establishing other things like the the Benny Gesserit who are basically, I don't want to call them witches because I don't think that that's fair. They're more of like a, I guess, a mystic order. And it's supposedly all women, although you find out that this is maybe a minor spoiler that I'll give you. you you'll you find out that Paul Astridis has been taught the ways of the Beni Gesserit. So that's gonna factor in to how things go. But you but you learn about spice and why it's important. You learn about the Fremen who the, the Fremen who are in the who are in the deserts, why they're there, what they're doing there. You also find out and certain things get more play than others, right? Which I think is also very, very interesting. But the way you're building these worlds and building these concepts and there's plenty of betrayal in this as well. And you have to pay attention to the character development in the beginning of this movie to really appreciate what you're going to get once you get to the latter stages of the movie. But there is one huge risk in this, in, in Dune. And that is that Yes, they're playing the long game in this particular movie, but they're also playing the long game overall because this will have a very open-ended ending. I can tell you that right now without fear of possible reprisal because what I will say is, is that they're betting on there being more of these. And I think that that's a safe bet, by the way. I'm not saying that it isn't, but that's always a little bit of a risk. When you're going in to a movie like this because you never really know how it's going to turn out because people have to people have to be taken in by this world that's being created. It's not just about it's very much not about big action. It's very much about concepts and ideas and the deepest and darkest version of science fiction to me anyway. I mean, there, there is some brevity and there's some, there's a cool factor in certain characters like Jason Momoa's Duncan Idaho character who I love and the relationship between his character and Timothy Chalmot's Paul Astridis is incredible. I also love these, the silent strength of the women in this movie as well. Rebecca Ferguson's lady, Jessica Astridis is a badass of epic proportions and I loved her in this movie so, so much. I also lo- loved Dr. Lyotkinus in this movie as well. She'll frustrate you at times, but at the same time, th- there's, a, there's a very key part that she plays in this movie. There's also one specific scene that is going to probably stick with me as, as I stick with this Dune franchise. And it's a battle between Paul Astrady's character and one of the Fremen characters' name is Jamis. And it is such an intense and incredible scene. And it happens towards the end of the movie, by the way. So if you're sticking with it like you should, then it'll pay off for you. Because my goodness, what a powerful scene and such a defining scene for Paul Astridis going forward as well. So don't get caught up in like, oh, is there an end credit sequence, mid credits? No, it doesn't have any of that stuff. What it has is is the development that it has within the movie that should be enough for you. And if it's not, it's not. And that's fine, by the way. If you prefer your movies done a certain way and you prefer things at a little bit of a quicker pace and you want things given to you a little bit more easily and more simply, then maybe Dune is something that's not going to interest you. But I love the fact that this movie was unafraid to say, we love our world. We think that there's a lot of very interesting and intriguing stuff going on here that you'll really really love and these characters that have so much depth and interest we're going to give you that and see what you think of it Dune was not afraid to live or die based on that concept and for and if for no other reason I loved it for that I will also say that you if you ever think that the score of a movie doesn't matter there have been some epic scores over the years. I will not even try to make any comparisons right now because you'll be mad at me. So I'm not going to do that. But I will say this. The great Hans Zimmer proves how great that he really is. Again, with this score. You want to tell me a score doesn't matter in a movie? Watch Dune and then tell me that it doesn't matter. Because the score was so important for setting the tone and the mood of this movie throughout. That... that It did not go unnoticed. It's a score that just reaches out, grabs you, pulls you in. And without a score like that, this movie suffers. With all due respect to Dennis Villeneuve, who I thought did a masterful job of directing this, without that score from Hans Zimmer, you've got almost nothing. And that is not a criticism in any way of the story or of the actors or anything like that. All I'm saying is is that this score turns this movie up to another level. And I think Villeneuve knew that. And that's why you go get somebody like Hans Zimmer. So I'm just telling you right now that if you truly love science fiction and you want a world that doesn't feel like 17 other worlds that you've watched in various sci-fi movies in the last 30 years, watch Dune and I think it'll be the breath of fresh air and the gift of hydration for your mind that you really really need and that joke will be more funny when you actually see the movie but yes watch dune and i think you'll absolutely enjoy the hell out of it that's gonna do it for my spoiler free review of the dune movie from warner brothers now available in theaters and on hbo max up next gonna go to another warner brothers film and an animated version of the injustice movie that's up next on the down and nerdy podcast
4: this is Ray Chase, the voice of Noctis in Final Fantasy XV, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: One of the more popular DC video games of all time, Injustice, finally gets the animated movie treatment from Warner Brothers Home Entertainment and DC Animation. I want to give you my spoiler-filled review of this movie, and right off the bat, I mean, this thing has been done was done so well cinematically in the video game series also done very well in the comics by tom taylor and company going into this i did not envy ernie altbacher who did the screenplay for this because how do you tell this story right and make it so it's not just the same old thing that you've seen but yet still keep some of the core elements of the movie so here's the deal if you're not familiar with injustice i can't imagine that you aren't but here's the deal again major spoilers The Joker basically ends up tricking Superman into killing Lois Lane and his unborn child, super dark, right? But then that sends Superman over the edge. So he decides to kind of take control of the entire world, basically, and say, hey, you know, all the bad stuff stops now. And you know that Batman's not necessarily going to go for that. And some other members of the League won't either. So that starts the tailspin of this storyline. And there's a couple things that... This movie got really, really right. And I'll and I'll tell you what they are right now. And, and first, first and foremost was the scene where Superman kills the Joker. They got that absolutely spot on right. There was no other way that you could have done that. They presented it to us basically in the way that you were expecting because that's what had to be done, right? So they got that right. Also, another death. It's interesting that this has to revolve around deaths per se, but another thing they got right was Damien killing Nightwing. They got that 100% right. And then, of course, Nightwing becoming Deadwing in the movie and, and playing a very, very key role, especially later on. They definitely got that. That was another thing they absolutely had to have. Did they make some other changes? Sure. Did they have some deaths that kind of surprised me and caught me off guard. Yeah, they definitely did. But those were a couple of things that they absolutely got right. The tension between Superman and Batman, they got that right too. Obviously, there's been tension between those two before. In this storyline, it's especially important. And what they did with Wonder Woman, I thought was really, really important as well. I thought that they got that pretty darn right as well. And Janet Varney, by the way, does a fantastic job as the voice of Wonder Woman in this, and I mean, it was a great cast just in general in in, in animation. I that Anson Mount was was I expected him to be a pretty good voice of Batman. He was actually better than I expected, quite frankly. So I thought that uh, he did a great job as well. But I mean, it, it's a it's interesting how they had to present this. There's some, there's certain amount of ways you could have gone. You could have gone the route where you do the slow burn and you get really detail-oriented or you could try and give, you the, give me the whole story in one movie. They decided to go with the latter. They decided to try and throw the whole story into one movie. And here's the problem that you come into when you do that is that as a fan of the comics and of the video game series, I kind of know what I'm missing in between there and there's so much depth. They can be added to this story in the cat and mouse game, and the chess—well, more like a chess game than anything else—between Superman and Batman, and these two different sides and how they play against each other. And you don't really get that in this movie as much as you did in the video games and in the comics. Now, there's a good reason for that, obviously, because maybe you don't know how many of these movies that you're going to make but at the same time it's hard for me not to miss that even if you're going to do it differently right because again you're not going to try and present the same thing in this movie that you did in the video games but but and this movie was actually very well done as its own standalone movie telling this story but at the same time I can't help but know that I'm missing certain things that I wished I'd gotten just because of how well the video game and the comic dealt with the story as well. Unfair, I understand that. And it's not even necessarily a criticism per se. It's almost like a, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, if you're someone who's making this movie. There's nothing really wrong with the way they made this movie. Like Take Sinestro, for example. Sinestro is a big part of this storyline. Not in this movie, though. You got Ra's al Ghul in this part of the story, and that's fine. But Sinestro, I thought, was a key piece in this that we didn't get. Of course, we don't... Again, major spoilers here. Uh, Flash is a little bit more of an important part of the story in the video game and in the comics. Not very much, not so much in this movie. So, again, you're picking and choosing certain characters that are going to be a part of your story and not a part of your story. And it's not to say that that this movie didn't do the story correctly or do it justice. I think it had to do what it did. And that's kind of take elements from both the comics and the video game. Because the comics basically expands on the entire story, right? So you're taking elements from both and trying to give me a 90-minute, say, for, for lack of a better way of putting it, a 90-minute movie that's going to be interesting and still make me go, this is the Injustice world that I know and love. And, and they did they did deliver on that. Because there's plenty of moments between Batman and Superman that you can hang your hat on. There's plenty of... I mean, Green Arrow. I thought that what they did with Green Arrow was a great, great thing. Him and Harley together. That was a very interesting dynamic throughout the movie. We, we know that Green Arrow certainly has key parts in this story as well. So I, I think that that's something... That they did very, very well. But again, you you just can't bring in every element of this movie. The, you, you got the brutal nature of it correct. I thought they did that well. I think that the animation style was really, really good too. And I know I knocked on DC for that in their last animated movie. Actually, it was more like Warner Brothers Home Entertainment for that with the Night of the Animated Dead, which was not good. This one, I think they redeemed themselves in that, but I, I think that I, I understand some of the criticism that this movie has received from others. But at the same time, I think you have to take a step back and realize, okay, they told their version of this story in the time allotted. You're tell you're being, you're told that here's the amount of time that we're giving you. Here's the story that we're giving you now, tied in a bow, and give me something that's going to be interesting. So they decide to go with. Amazo and Ra's Ghoul, Ghul and take that angle and kind of accelerate through the injustice storyline as a whole more and try to tie it up into one story so yes you miss some of the elements that you really really love from the comic and the game because of the depth that they can provide this movie wasn't really given that opportunity again it's not like you're getting multiple sequels here so this movie tried to do it all in one And it didn't necessarily feel rushed. Nothing really felt forced. But at the same time, yes, you do kind of miss certain things that weren't there. But at the same time, I thought really, really well done for what they had to work with. An incredible voice cast across the board, which is completely undeniable. Justin Hartley's Superman was very, very well done as well. Amazing direction action sequences. Were on point Matt Peters I'm sure the director had a lot to do with that so I think this a very successful adaptation of the injustice story yes there could have been more but at the same time this would have been one you could have absolutely screwed up or done shot for shot they did not do that aside from a couple of very key scenes and I was very very happy to see that That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the Injustice movie up next. How about we talk about Titans? The season three finale has wrapped, and I'll talk about it next. More spoilers ahead on the Down and Nerdy podcast.
6: This is Aaron Pierre from Krypton, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast.
0: Can the Titans save Gotham? It's time to find out in the season three finale of Titans from HBO Max. Yep, this review is going to be spoiler-filled because the show is out only been out for a couple days. I understand that. But I got to talk spoilers about this one because it'd be really hard not to. i got to say, there's a few things that they did really, really well in this episode. First things first, and I'm going to kind of bounce around here a little bit. But using the Lazarus Pit was one thing. Turning it into a storm cloud and have it rain down on all of Gotham to save those that had already died at the hands of Scarecrow was a friggin' brilliant move. I love that they thought outside the box enough to do that. I'm sure that you're going to be able to quote me an issue in a page where this was done before. Don't care. Good for you. I love the fact that they brought that onto the screen. I also really, really like the way that they brought along the tension in the Titans and how you kind of, I mean, you you kind of buried that For the greater good, right? They also really, really, I thought the entire season captured the very difficult relationship between Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon. You really could have given them the whole happy ending thing. You could have romanticized it a little bit more. No, their relationship is extremely complicated. And they really, really nailed that in this series. So I thought that that was really, really neat. You also made Jonathan Crane. You made the Scarecrow. And, 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 you know, you probably loved Scarecrow at some point, right? He's a good villain. Man, did you make him formidable in this season of Titans, especially at the end. You made him creepy. You made it look like, I mean, infiltrating the Batcave and all of these other things. You really made Scarecrow out to be unstoppable against an entire team of Titans. Now, granted... You had some help from Jason Todd. You had the whole Red Hood thing, which, again, the way they told that story, probably the, the most sense a Red Hood story has ever made so far on any type of screen. So I got to commend them for that. But the way that they figured this all out and the way that they actually ended up ending this thing in this season, I thought was incredibly Well done. And again, it was another one of those things where you've got an ensemble cast and everybody kind of gets their moment. And Beast Boy playing that key role, right, where he gets into Wayne Manor and actually as a bat, by the way, which I mean, how appropriate was that? And then he he's the one that kind of, you know, gets the security systems locked down, gets Barbara and Argus into that thing. and, And that's how they take down Scarecrow, basically. So I thought that that was really, really fun. There were some funny elements in this as well that, that just sort of happen with this show, right? You We finally get to see how formidable Raven is. That was kind of a slow burn. I know we saw some of that last season. Really kicks into gear about halfway through this third season. And then it's the origin of Tim Drake too, right? You've got that whole thing going on as well. So I, I, again, the way that they tied this all together in this season... Maybe the best season of Titans yet, not just because that they were in Gotham, but because there was so many moving parts to this season that were, guess what? All interesting. Did you find yourself when you were watching Titans this season, think, man, I wish they'd get off this storyline. No, I know I didn't. And you keep waiting for that to happen, right? Especially when you've got a whole lot of balls in the air. You've obviously got a main focus of the story. And that was that of Scarecrow and Red Hood, right? And, you know, that relationship of what's Scarecrow really going to do? What's his endgame sort of thing? But then when you go to certain things like when you've got Hank trapped in with Donna and Tim in the underworld, right? And they're trying to find a way out. That was a side story that could have easily been one of those where you go, eh, not interested. Not, Not really looking forward to seeing what happens to this. And it was damn interesting. So the one thing that this show succeeded in throughout this entire season was making each one of its story elements interesting. And when you're bringing in new characters to a show that already has a ton, making them important and interesting as well. You know, talking about Blackfire, even Barbara Gordon to a certain extent, right? You knew it was going to be pretty easy to make her interesting, especially with the relationship with Dick Grayson. But then the way they brought Blackfire in and how they kind of weave that story through Starfire's storyline. And, and you bring Connor into the mix there as well. Which is totally unexpected. And then you see him like blow up her ship. In the last episode. A very selfish move on his part. And he owns that in the finale. And that's the other thing that this show does really well. Is owning the mistakes of its heroes. And being better after that. So you could say yeah this show is a is a violent uptick on a story and making it much more adult than any Titan story's ever been. And you could love it for that, but you could also love it for it's breath of fresh air of just letting heroes own their mistakes and trying be, to be better on the other side. And where that, where Jason Todd goes from here, who knows you see him kind of split off from the team. It looks like Donna might be doing something with Argus. Yes, they are bringing Tim Drake. It looks like, into the Titans fold, and Bruce Wayne, who tried to kill himself. By the way, if Donna didn't save him, who knows how that would have gone? Bruce Wayne's back in Gotham. So, is he back, back, or is he not? You don't know. So, there's plenty of things to look forward to in season four of Titans, because we found out at DC Fandom that Titans will be back for fourth season on HBO Max. So, I'm, and now they're headed to San Francisco. Really interested. To see how that goes. Could could we work Hive into the mix? You know, there's some other things that you could do, I'm sure, as well. But whatever they decide to do, they're going to have to... I mean, they've got some big shoes to fill because this was a major, great season of Titans. Season 3 now streaming in its entirety on HBO Max. And this finale with so many good elements and it, so many great action sequences, and just so much smart writing. I think you're really, really... Gonna enjoy the season if you and, and guess what I didn't really spoil a ton in this review, so that's that's always good. I I, hey, I warned you about spoilers earlier, but yeah, definitely go back and watch Titans if you haven't already, or if you kind of fell a little bit behind, make sure you finish it because it's good stuff. That's gonna do it for my spoiler filled review of the season three finale and kind of the whole season of Titans from HBO Max. Up next, I think we've got time for some nerd news. Let's see if we can sneak it in. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: This is Benjamin Percy, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: No time to waste. It's time for nerd news. And there's not going to be much here because there really wasn't much throughout the week, but I wanted to do a quick recap of DC Fandom from last week. Once again, DC Fandom, I would say increasing fears that the need for in-person conventions is becoming less and less from major studios because, man, was this a spectacle at DC Fandome. We get the new trailer for the Batman. We get to dig a little deeper into that. We see more of Colin Farrell's Penguin. We get to see Zoe Kravitz as Selina Kyle slash Catwoman. And I am all in, by the way, on that. that. This trailer sold me on Zoe Kravitz. Not that I was not sold before. Really sold me on her this time, and just seeing the depth of the crime noir story that Matt Reeves is going to be telling in this movie, I thought was really brought out in this trailer. And there's just, I, and maybe this is a cliche, but there's a darkness about this movie. I know, Dark Knight, ha ha ha, whatever. There's a darkness about this movie that I think I'm, I'm really going to dig, and the fact that it's just Batman at its finest from what it seems like based on the trailer, Anyway, if we're going to judge something by the trailer, let's do let's do that and just say that this looks absolutely as incredible as we want it to be. And hopefully that's the case. We'll see that in March. We also saw the teaser for the Flash movie, which has wrapped filming, by the way. And we get to hear a little bit of narration from Michael Keaton's Batman. We get to see a couple of different versions of Ezra Miller's Flash from what we could see. In the trailer, and and again, there's really not much. That it's just a little bit of a teaser, that and very much teases Keaton's Batman, but at the same time, there's a lightness to this, and obviously, again, confirmation that we're going to be following some sort of Flashpoint storyline here. So keep that in mind as we get more and more on this. Which I'm not, I'm not sure we're going to see any more updates on the Flash movie for a little bit as they start the post-production process then you look at Black Adam which where we got a look at one of the opening scenes from the movie that was teased by Dwayne the Rock Johnson and it is Black Adams introduction to badassery basically is where, where he kind of wipes out a bunch of dudes and you know the whole bullets against superheroes super villains anti-heroes kind of thing it, it, I feel like that we're getting to the point or we've gotten to the point a long time ago where that's kind of overused. I realize that we're not steeped in realism here and and maybe I shouldn't tug at this thread, but I would love it if superhero movies and general comic book movies would stop using that trope of let's just keep shooting and see what happens. Stop it. If it doesn't work within the first five seconds, it's not going to work. So just chill out on that. So that, that's just a little nitpicky thing. And then you see members of the cast, you get to kind of see the helmet of fate from Dr. Fate and Pierce Brosnan. You get to kind of see what Cyclone is going to look like. You get to kind of see the, at least the logo for Aldous Hodges, Hawkman, things like that. And of course it's their job to hype up this movie, right? Of course they're going to say it's incredible. And we don't really have anything that tells us that it's going to that it's going to be or it's not going to be at this point again teasers but it certainly is adding to the spectacle of the whole thing we also got some very interesting renewal news as far as shows were concerned of course Doom Patrol going to be back for another season I talked about Titans being renewed who knows if we'll see Rahad ghoul in that fourth season I'm kind of hoping that that's the case but we're seeing what we are seeing, is a huge vote of confidence in these HBO Max originals. Now, adding to that is going to be Pennyworth, which is going to become an HBO Max original when it's coming for its third season. However, Epix also sent out a tweet saying that the show was not leaving that network as well. So it looks like we might be seeing a dueling thing here, maybe a first run on HBO Max and then run on Epix after the fact. I think that's probably what we're looking at here, kind of what they did with DC's Stargirl in its first season with with the CW and DC Universe back when DC Universe was still a thing. And I kind of missed DC Universe, quite frankly, in a weird way, but I prefer HBO Max. I, it, it's, I know it's a weird thing for me to say, but that's that's just where I'm at with that right now. So, the, so I'm really, really stoked about Pennyworth coming back. For a third season, and I think HBO Max might actually crank things up a little bit for this third season. There's going to be a big time jump too, so I'm very interested to see how they handle that. There is also the trailer for Peacemaker, and we find out that that spin-off series is of the Suicide Squad movie is going to be coming out on January the 13th on HBO Max, and it is just freaking wild and crazy and and fun and everything you would expect from a James Gunn production, and I am all here for the Peacemaker vigilante dynamic in this show, because that's that's what looks the most fun. But what, what this is really going to do is add some interesting depth to the character of Peacemaker, and, and, and is he a hero or not? Is, how did he get to the point where he was at? Is he redeemable? Sort of things like that. So I think that's those are some of the themes that this show is going to touch on, and I think that that's going to be pretty interesting, Not not to mention it's going to be pretty damn entertaining too and there's certainly nothing wrong with that either. So I'm very curious and, and James Gunn said there's plans for a possible future seasons, should that be an option? And I think that if you can get John Cena back on board, I could see this something as something running for as long as they kind of want it to. There's also a very interesting trailer that was thrown in here for Catwoman Hunted, which is the next Warner Brothers and DC animation movie that's gonna be coming out in February as well. And it's interesting because f- finally we're getting a, a Catwoman mo- animated movie, which I think is long overdue. And what I didn't expect was like this 70s vibe with this fun team up between Catwoman and Batwoman, which I think is really, really going to be interesting. And Elizabeth Gillis is going to be playing Catwoman. And Stephanie Batrice from Brooklyn Nine Nine fame is finally going to get her chance to play batwoman i know it's just an animated series but i mean i i think that this is is kind of she's going to do the role justice i certainly know that but it's just this and there's all kinds of different villains in this movie she's catwoman's trying to steal a priceless jewel and it just again this is one of those that just looks fun and hopefully that's exactly how it plays out for what it's worth black mask is also on the cover of the, of the Blu-ray, so I, it looks like Black Mask will be, it, it feels very Birds of Prey-esque, but at the same time with Catwoman and and with a little bit of a different feel to it as well, so that's just one of the, that's just some of the many things that stuck out to me from DC Fandom. Really quickly, I want to touch on the Uncharted trailer that was finally released by Columbia Pictures and Sony. That movie's going to be coming out on February the eighteenth. There was some stuff that were was basically pulled right from the games that you'll notice in the trailer like the where Tim where where Nathan Drake is falling out of the airplane there and that scene basically ripped right from the game, almost not almost shot for shot, but you know, very, very similar. But I gotta say, I don't know that this trailer did a lot to sell me on Tom Holland as Nathan Drake, which I was still kind of, I know young Nathan Drake but still I wasn't totally sold on, and I love Tom Holland, but I wasn't sold on him as this particular character. What I am sold on is the chemistry between he and Mark Wahlberg's Sully. That is clearly there in this trailer. I think those two are going to play really, really well off of each other. But I mean, come on. It's treasure hunting. It's action. It's adventure. It's going to be the reason why we don't really need another Indiana Jones movie, quite frankly, with all due respect, after seeing the last one, I'm not sure that uh, their confidence is very high there. So, I, again, I am all up for this new Uncharted movie, and I I really, really hope that it works out, quite frankly. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast, and once again, thanks to my amazing guests, the cast and producers of Lock and Key from Netflix, which is now streaming also. For Zara Gorecki for joining me to talk about La Brea, which you can watch every Tuesday night on NBC. Make sure you go to downandnerdypodcast.com to keep up with everything that we've got going on and all kinds of other nerd news stories on there. Also follow along on social media at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram at downandnerdy on Facebook. And remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.